0: Welcome to the Financial Feast Podcast. Today, I am very happy to introduce to you Nate, a driven and accomplished individual with a very diverse background. Having served in the U.S. Navy, he later found his calling in the real estate industry. Over the past 10 years, he's been devoted to flipping houses and establishing long-term rentals. Through his diligent efforts, he has achieved financial independence and serves as an inspiration for others looking to achieve the world of real estate successfully.
1: Well, thanks, Nate, for joining our podcast. We're excited to have you today. Excited to be here, man. I don't know if you wanted to just start off before we kind of got into the topic at hand on just introducing yourself, giving it a little bit about your history, a little bit about your connection with real estate, just kind of giving people a little bit of a taste of what you do.
2: Yeah, man. So my name's Nate. Married, have three kids, three little boys, not over the age of six. So wow. my house is kind of crazy right now. So I get to do that. Right now, I currently get to work at New Version, um, which is part of Life Church. We create Bible apps, so I get to do that right now. But my journey into financial independence really started at a young age when I saw my dad, Claude's way out of debt, taking financial peace back in the early 90s, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it was just a guy named Dave on a radio show. We used to listen to it in his peach truck driving. He'd be picking me up from my mom's and we'd go into his house. When I was really young, they used to live paycheck to paycheck. They were putting groceries and stuff on credit cards and not the way to earn points, but as a way just to pay for groceries because they didn't have money in the bank to cover it. So I was there when they cut up their credit cards and they started uh, paying off debt. And so I I grew up that was always impressed on me to kind of just like stay away from debt at all costs. You need to figure out budgeting, make sure you save, make sure you have enough money. And so just fast forward many years, because I don't want to bore everybody with all the details, but (laughs) when I graduated high school, you know, I really wanted to go to school and I, I sort of wanted to play music, but I was really scared to go into the world and not be able to afford it. You know what I mean? And I just really didn't know. Like I, because I had been paying for my own car, and gas, and insurance, and yeah. I didn't see how I'd be able to go to school full time and how to do that, and so I ended up joining the Navy, the United States Navy, and I served ten years total, but seven years active. This is all relative because I actually thought when I joined I'd probably do twenty years and just live off of retirement. In about four years, four to five years into it, I realized that there's a potential. I was about to get married. Realized there's a potential that I may not do twenty years in the Navy. And all I had done was put 6% in my TSP for retirement out of my paycheck. And it was in the G fund, which is like literally the most conservative fund you could put anything into. I knew about the power of compounding, but I didn't know anything about investing or index funds or all this stuff that uh, maybe people listening don't know that, but, but I definitely didn't know it. So I was like, well, where do I go? So I went to Dave Ramsey and he had this like retirement IQ calculator. So I typed it in and it said I needed like I don't know, $2 million. And I just, in my head, I just couldn't get around. How do I make $2 million? in lifetime? Yeah. Like I just couldn't, like my mind just couldn't wrap its head around it. And so at the same time, a, a buddy of mine, I won't name his name, but he was going um, to our local RIA, which is a real estate investment association. And uh, I thought he was getting scammed, but uh, he was getting taught this thing called wholesaling. And put something under contract and then flip it to another investor for an assignment fee and make money off, off of it. And I thought it was like a scam. So I was like, I need to go to, to you with this local RIA and see what what's going on here. What are you doing? And the people that presented that day weren't talking about wholesaling. They were talking about buy and hold investing, creating rental real estate. And it just started a process of me of like, maybe this is a way that I could pay for it and I started to flip my mindset of I don't have to hit a number I just have to cover my monthly expenses. So what passive income could I develop to cover my monthly expenses and that started my kind of my train down the real estate path. Okay. And so I took about 2 years to read books and figure it out and educate myself and I spent a lot of money I probably shouldn't have spent taking a course with Rich Dad Company to figure out how to buy a house and I bought my first house. And I literally, all I did was I went on the MLS and, um, I just offered 50% off on every house I did. And my realtor fired me after I bought my first house because I, I drove him ragged. Yeah. But I closed on my first house, HVAC caught on fire. Like literally the week after I closed on it, didn't have money to pay for it, had to raise money to pay for it. And, uh, yeah, I've been renting real estate ever since. Wow. That's impressive. So how long since
0: you started, have you been doing it now? How many years have you been into it now?
2: So I started my rentals back in 20, I always forget the year, 14 or 15 is when I started. And I got actual local mentors at that local area I mentioned to help me figure out how to find a deal, how to source one, how to do my own marketing, all that. And I bought one house. And then I say I'm not in the game, like, because in 2017, I got the job into full time ministry. And the whole reason I started building my portfolio was so that I could work in ministry full time. And so when I got into ministry, I was actually in the process of rehabbing a single wide trailer because I was going to start buying trailers and running them out and decided that I didn't want to manage any of my own properties. So I went ahead and flipped that and sold it. And I also did flipping for about a year and a half when I was self-employed before I got the job here. And then I ended up just buying a couple of houses while I've been here, just because people come to me with deals or I find something that I like and I make an offer on it and I want to turn it over into a rental. And so I have about a handful of properties that I rent out. Okay. Yeah, started back in 2015.
1: So I think today we really wanted to kind of hit on that idea of finding a deal, right? Because I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, the idea of getting a rental is a great idea. But if you get the wrong type of house, right, in the wrong market, um, that's going to be kind of over your budget and not actually making you money, then it's a poor investment. So I think that the first place to start when you're looking at getting a rental property that's going to be able to bring you in passive income and get you to that point where you're able to be financially independent is what process do we kind of take to get to that deal? So in your estimation and kind of your process that you've done, how would you kind of define a deal for you? And then what processes are you doing to kind of get to that point?
2: That's good. And I like the way you say a deal for you because a deal for me could be a, not a deal for someone else. There's something to think about when you're looking at it. We sometimes like look at other people and say, hey, if I could just do what they did. And so I hope what, we, what I talk about gives you inspiration, but know that people bring different resources to the table. They bring maybe more time than maybe I have. Maybe they have different skills. And so always I always say take by taking inventory of yourself. Like, do you have money? Do you have access to capital? Do you have time? Do you have certain skills that could help you out? And so I always start there. But when I think of a deal, I specifically, when I started out, I was just looking, does it thing cash flow? And does it cash flow X amount of dollars after principal interest, taxes, and insurance? And the reason I did that is because, you know, for me back then it was $400, it might be a little bit more now. I didn't make it all super complicated. The spreadsheet or anything like that. was literally like, if I got a loan and it was this X percent interest rate after I fixed it up and the expected rent based on the research that I've done is this much, then that minus this should equal, you know, this minus PITI is industry standard is what I would want to do. And I had a rule, like I didn't want to be more than 80% in to loan to value. So after it got fixed up, so I'd have to buy it for cheaper than 80% out of the gate if I was going to fix it up. But once I put all the materials in, 80%. If I was flipping the house, I wanted to be somewhere between 60 to 70% loan to value once it's all fixed up so that I had that margin. So it just depends what I was doing. But for buy and hold, I allowed myself 80%. Because at the time I was getting in, so if you actually look historically in 2012 is when our market bottomed out for real estate. And so it started going up after that. And so housing prices were starting to go up. And so I knew if I bought something at 80% on the dollar, it would probably, you know, not. and I have a, my mentors always told me one deal at a time. So if I bought one deal and it went south, it's not a big deal. I just fix it. And then I move on to the next one. But yeah, that's what I'm looking for. And so to be honest, most people don't know where to start. My mentors told me I won't tell their, their names because they probably don't want to know <laughs> people blowing up their phones. But they made it simple for me. They said, "Go look at 100 houses around the neighborhood that you want to do." And I said, "By the time that you look at 50, you'll have bought one or two. That was their that was their thing. Just go look at 100 houses. He said, "I don't care how you look at 100 houses. Go on the MLS, get a realtor to get you in there. Go on Zillow, drive neighborhoods, all that. That's what you would do." And so that's how I started was like, okay, I just need to look at a hundred houses. And then after I looked at about 10 houses, I would know kind of what my product market fit would be for single family homes. So for me now, you wouldn't find a house this price now, Now it would probably be $150,000 or less uh, is what my, it would have been like hundred thousand dollars seven years ago, but about $150,000 or less. I specialize in in smaller homes. So two bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, one bath at the most three, two is what I did. And I would focus on neighborhoods there because I wanted the cash flow to the value to be high. That's where that 1% rule comes in. I wanted it to be closer to one to 2%. And I also picked those because I understood them because I lived in those, you know, I lived in a trailer and I lived in a really small house growing up and I lived in a three, one growing up. So I knew I knew it. I didn't, there's things I just didn't have to think about. I would pick neighborhoods that mostly had those. And then I would literally get to know that neighborhood like the back of my hand. I would go to those neighborhoods. I'd print out a Google map. I would take a highlighter and I would literally drive down every single street. I would record every street I was going down. And then if a house just looked like it needed a mailer, I would say, hey, do this. Now, if it like had a bad roof, I'd say, hey, 2461, bad roof, all this. And then Uh, where I live, the county assessor website has literally all the information on who owns everything. So I built my own mailing list. I never bought a mailing list. I always built my own by driving, commonly known as driving for dollars, but I would literally drive a neighborhood mark out every street on the map. I would call out houses. I'd build my list, figure out who owned the property, figured out if they live there or not. And then I would dedupe it because sometimes you'd have an investor in that square mile that had four or five houses. And so I don't want to send them one mailer. And I'd probably get four or 500 houses. And then I would market to them at least seven times using mailers. That was the best way. Now, that was not the only thing I ever did. I tried a whole bunch of things that didn't work. I'd, I did bandit signs. I used to have these bandit signs said Nate Spice houses and I put them down the median. And then I got pulled over by the cop and told him and almost huh. told me never to do that again. I mean, I did everything, but I really love direct mail. And back then I put my email address on it. A lot of people just put their phone number and so I bought my house off of that. I bought my second house off of that. And uh, the guy emailed me and we just went back and forth. And I finally looked at the house and I had a one-page contract that I'd written up. And we, we did a deal and then we closed about a month later through a title company. So the title insurance happens, they run all the right legal and paperwork. And that was my second rental property.
1: So had you bought any houses that have actually come up for sale or have they all been through direct mail and through... Driving.
2: They've all been up, down, and across. So the first house I bought off the MLS um, because I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. The second house I bought was off direct mail. When I was flipping, basically all the houses I got were through direct mail or some sort of other marketing like bandit mail. Or I would even drive if they were inside the city limits. Um, I would find out where these people lived, and they were absentee. Because when I was flipping, I only marketed to absentee landlords, meaning like they they didn't live at the house. I didn't actually market to the owners that were living in the house. I would go and knock on their doors and leave business cards if they weren't there, um, and try to talk to them that way. I would do all that. We called it the farm area. So when I was flipping, I would expand it. I didn't focus on one square mile. I did one square mile, and then a week later, I would get another square mile, and I'd have multiple marketing campaigns going. To try to get those. And then I did everything from handwriting the letters, which took an awful long time. And I'd be listening to bigger pockets in the background. Why I'm writing my letters, or I would use Click to Mail, which is the post office's cheap version to send out postcards. Or I'd go to Office Depot or Staples because my Rhea had a deal with him and I would buy things and I'd make my own postcards. I mean, I did everything to try to get a deal. And so I flipped like three or four houses in a year and made some pretty good money. I also made a lot of money through networking and partnerships. So a lot of local wholesalers here in Oklahoma would would link up together, and if somebody had a deal but they couldn't sell it, they would just link up with another wholesaler and then they would flip it. And I did a lot of that. I did a lot of acquiring houses for another person to sell. And so I've I've done a, I've done almost everything when it comes to finding a deal. Hmm. So when you say flip
0: houses, are you actually fixing them up? Or are you hiring someone to fix them up if they need?
2: So all three. So I would, so I call, when I say flip houses, I mean, there's like three types. There's wholesaling, um, which I don't really do anymore for various reasons, but mainly just the perception of it by the outside, by people that you're buying and selling from. They think you're acting as a realtor and I don't really want that. So I try to keep away from that, but it's where you get a house under contract and you flip that contract to another investor for an assignment fee, or you double close it. Um, You now have to have a license to do that in Oklahoma. But back when I was doing it, you didn't have to, you just had to have a contract. I had to have interest in the property, which I did. Then there's hoteling, which I personally like to do a couple of those, where you um, buy a house, you close on it, and you don't really fix it up, but you just clean it up. So it's messy, you clean it up, you make it presentable, and then you flip it and sell it to another investor. It was very popular the last couple of years here. And then I did one flip where I actually fixed it all up and then I ended up keeping it. So I didn't actually sell it, but that's what I mean.
0: And then when you're doing your rentals, you're talking long-term rental, not doing like an Airbnb or kind of the short-term stuff?
2: No. And it's partly because of focus for me. So not against those things. But back when I was doing an Airbnb was barely a thing when I started investing. And so I learned how to do single family homes just because that's what my mentors did, just to be honest. Um, mostly some of them did our apartments, but I was not ready for that, and they were getting out of that game anyways. But they knew single-family homes. I could learn about single-family homes. I understood single-family homes, and so that's why I chose that. Um, there's a lot of people that I knew that did multifamily properties, such as you know quadplexes, triplexes, those types of things. Me personally wouldn't do like an Airbnb or short terminal unless it was like part of a property that I lived in. So if I lived in my house, I, and I wanted the house hack and my wife would allow it, but she won't. But if she did, I would Airbnb that. (laughs) But I I just don't want to be, I don't want to be in the, I don't want to be in the hospitality business, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And you really are. It's like, there's all these things you can do with real estate, but there's just just different industries and short-term rentals can be like more of a hospitality business. And there's other markets for it. People love to fix them up and flip them to like, a big thing here is like nurses, um, traveling nurses and stuff like that, that That's it's short term, but it's more long term than short terms, like you know, two to three months. They love that game. There's a lot of people that
1: do that. So then are you having a management company do the rentals that you have so that way you're not having to do it? Yep. That was a key, or else I would have sold them. Okay.
2: And the reason why isn't because they don't make money and because it's not a good investment. It's because the so what factor of why I was doing real estate was so I could do ministry. I'm getting to do ministry now. I don't want real estate to take me away from what my true passion is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, real estate was a was a means to an end for me. That's why I don't put as much activity or I'm not as active as buying houses today. And I'm using, you know, other methods of investment, such as index funds and stuff like that, because it's truly passive. And the houses I have, once I pay them off in a few years, man, I'm done. Like I'm already financially free. That's just going to make me even more you know, financially free. I don't need the headache of 50 to 100 houses yeah. um, to do that. And not saying like some people do, and they love it. So I'm not disparaging them either. But for me, I just don't need that.
0: That makes sense. Another question I had for you is when a lot of people talk about rental properties, passive income, there's a lot of buzzwords out there. But I was just wondering, what are some kind of misconceptions that you might've had going into it that you found out maybe something wasn't exactly how you thought it was or or maybe other people that you've heard talk about this have a common misconception about it that might not be reality for maybe your cases exactly as far as everyone is different so yeah philosophically
2: i think that real estate is more passive than a business but more business than like a, like an index fund right it's like this mixture And a few years ago, my mentors would always tell me, you got to run it like a business. You got to run it like a business. It just clicked. I got to run each property like it's its own mini business. It's got to make a certain amount of income. I have to be proactive in knowing what type of costs will come up beyond just the mortgage payment that includes principal interest taxes and insurance. I got to make sure that I put enough money and I calculate how much money I'm going to need for maintenance and repairs. I got to plan for those things. And I got a plan for like with tenants, I'm firm and fair. You know what I mean? I follow the process. The minute they're late, I start sending letters um, because of just, they're protected by the state. And so I just follow the process, firm and fair. And have I made exceptions? A hundred percent I have, but for the most part, especially during COVID that, and then also, I think I under appreciated how much you need in cash reserves once you fix up the property. So like, I get it. You're trying to raise money when you're first buying property, especially if you're going to leverage it, but you need to plan for having X amount of cash reserves. And if you do that, it could be passive, but it could be less stressful and it can be boring. And when it's not boring, I don't like life. When it When real estate is boring, I love it because I'm making money. So I try to make it as boring as possible. And I just don't think I ever realized how boring real estate would be
1: once you start getting good at it. Boring's good, which is an interesting thing to think about because that yeah, means you're yeah. not having a lot of problems. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a great thing to be in, yeah, for sure. I think another question that I had with I know Bigger Pockets is huge on direct mail. I know that's something that they really love, and I was listening to another podcast by them actually yesterday where they were interviewing somebody who said that they're sending out tons and tons and tons of direct mail and their their percentage that they're getting back is pretty minimal. Yeah. How, how much do you think you're getting as far as how many mailers are you sending out? And then what's your response rate in, in getting those back?
2: Yeah, that's good. So in transparency, I haven't done this for a couple of years. So the environment may be different. First off, a lot of people are buying lists. So let's talk about that for a minute. A lot of people will buy lists off the internet. The problem with that is everybody's buying that list. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's mailing to that list. Those skip trace phones, texts and numbers that all of us investors get from people trying to buy our house. Like it's coming from those lists. The first thing is if you really want a good response rate and you're just starting out, I would just encourage you build your own list. That's my encouragement because your, your open rate will be more. You're going to get houses that aren't on those lists. You're going to have updated stuff that those lists may not have and so there are people that build lists and then sell them and that's how they make money um people get absentee landlord lists all the time you really want to you really want to build your own list so that's the first thing i'll say and then like i said before i think you pick an area and you learn it and you do that if you really want to do it i don't just stop direct mails. if i'm really like getting in the game i will do direct mail so people it's like a soft introduction it's like indirect marketing they it's direct marketing because i'm directly mailing to the house but in a way you're getting people to know your name and then like if you really want to buy your first house i mean i would um i mean when i built my list this is what i would do i would i would voice record literally every house that looked weird but every house that was for sale on the mls i'd record that every house that was for rent I would record that and I would call and look at every single one of those houses that were for sale and for rent and to see what the rents were or to see if that landlord that's renting it wants to like maybe sell it. I would I would do that. I would be weird and I would walk down streets and hand out flyers on the doors. I mean, that's the type of stuff I would do. But if you're just purely sending mail, you got to do something that catches their attention. If you're doing like click to mail, your response rate is going to be 1% or less. Like it's just not going to be that great. Okay. Um, at least it wasn't when I did it. Is what I'll say. I'll, I'll speak to my numbers. The one time I did handwritten letters and it literally like the ROI may not have been there because it took me like a week to write like 400 letters. Cause you're talking to 400, 500 Miller lists. My response rate for that was like five to 10% depending okay. on when I do it. So how much effort you want to put in there to do it? I think the middle ground is good. What I would do is I would do the seven touches. I would email out like maybe postcards the first time. And then two weeks later, I would, I said email, I meant mail. I would mail out two weeks later, I would do maybe a handwritten note the second time. And then I'd do a month. It'd be a month cycle after that. So every month I would be retargeting these people. And then if people like called me and said, Hey, take me off your list. I take them off my list, but I would retarget them every month. Basically for six months, I'd target them seven times. And so the next time maybe I do like a typed up word document with a picture of my family and Hey, like I'm, you know, just trying to connect with the person and I would do this. I would, I would, I would experiment with different envelopes and letters. Um, I would, I would hand stamp all my ones and I wouldn't use the, the, the regular stamp. So it looked like a personal letter. So people would open it. Like I would just experiment with that and people, those things would open at different rates. That's what you have to do when you're starting out because all the big dogs are selling like open door and them are selling out the glossy postcards that say, Hey, I'll buy your house cash down right now. Everybody's saying that you just got to find a way to make yourself different
1: when you're doing that. How much cash up front are you doing? Are you offering? Cause I know a lot of times, a lot of these people that are doing this have the capital to where they're saying, Hey, look, I'll just buy it outright cash. When you're first starting with this, you might not have that much cash, right? So I know you talked about loan to value. So clearly you're getting a loan for some of these properties. How does that look? Mm-hmm. When you're going to present to a potential purchase here on how, how are you selling that? And what's what's a good maybe down payment to target for for some of these?
2: Sure. So we'll separate those two out. So the first one is what am I presenting to the person? What I'm presenting to the person is I'm buying the property cash, meaning that I'm not actually bringing cash to the table necessarily, but it means that this is not going to not because of a mortgage is what that means. That contingency for a mortgage just taken out. So when people say they'll buy cash, they're not literally saying they're going to use their own cash and buy it. They're saying, this property is not contingent on me getting a mortgage or not. I'm going to bring cash to the table. We're going to close that way. And if there's any closing costs because of a mortgage, then I'm covering it as the buyer in that sense. So that's what that means. So that's how I present it to them. It's cash every time. I'm buying cash. I'm bringing money to the table. You're going to get a check in hand the day we close. And then I always just super official because I was just scared. I'd always go through a title company. You can do quick claim deeds and stuff like that. I would just encourage you I, in Oklahoma. This is in Oklahoma. I know different states are different. Sometimes you have to take them to an attorney or whatever, whatever the official process is. I would just encourage you when you're doing deals like this to do that because you just never know, man. <laughs> you just never know when you do a quick claim deed that that person actually has the authority to sell it. And so when I claim, they do all that due diligence for me. So I would always do that. So it's at that official place. So it was as official as possible, even if I wasn't using a realtor. Hmm. So that's that piece. On the flip side, it really depends. So if you're starting out, this is when you take you take charge of your resources. I think it's always good to bring some of your own money to the table, to have some skin in the game. But we always had this saying, if you find the right deal, the money will come. And so like literally when I got that first deal, I had no idea how to raise money. This is the story that happened. My realtor was like, okay, What's, where's your mortgage? I'm like, what mortgage? What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you're going to have to raise money. And the house, I bought it so cheap that I couldn't find a traditional mortgage for it. I had to get a business loan. I had to call 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 banks before I got approved for a business loan. And then I somehow had to raise another seventh grand for the down payment. And it was my first deal. So sometimes your first deal, if you have money that you're going to bring the down payment, I would definitely at least try to bring 20% and have it ready. is a good rule of thumb to do when you're doing it. That being said, There are strategies and ways where you can raise hard money, what they call hard money lending, to do your down payment and then take a loan for the rest. But a typical strategy, once you're established, or some people will do this if you buy the house cheap enough, is if you're going to buy a fixer-upper, which that's all I ever bought on investments was fixer-uppers. I never, except for my own house that I just bought, (laughs) and then I flipped my old house to a rental. Like I've never bought a new house that wasn't a fixer. And so because of that, a typical strategy is you get some sort of loan for that first year. A common one you can get is like a construction loan. That's interest only for the first year. And what they typically do, you're approved for X amount. It's usually how much you have to pay the house for plus another 10, 20% for repairs. And so that company that you do it through, We'll cut a check when you buy the house and they'll assume ownership of that property. And then as you're doing work, they'll cut you checks every week as you're as you're fixing stuff up. And then once you fix it up, you'll just refi it. and then hopefully you get all your money out that you put in. So if you if you got a steal of a deal like you bought it for really low value and you fix it up for let's say it's a you bought a house for 60 grand. All in, including repairs. And so you got the loan for 60 grand to do it as a construction loan. You had to bring maybe $7,000 of your own money to the table. Say so you fix it up 15, 120,000 that you could get cash at refi and still make it cash flow. You do that. You get all your money back plus more. You get like $60,000. I know that's a stream example, but people, people do that. And then they use the cash that they made from that property and then they put it towards the next one hmm. and then they rinse and repeat. And that's what's called burr, right? Buy, rehab, rinse, repeat. And there might be another R in there somewhere, but but that's what it is. So that's the typical strategy. It's just that first one's really hard. So you got to find a really, really good deal that's really cheap, and you use the strategies I just mentioned to do that, or you bring some money to the table to make that first initial down payment. So for me, my first that wasn't my first rehab I did, but the second rehab I did, they didn't have me bring a down payment, but they made me put twenty percent of what the loan was into a CD in case they needed it. If I didn't rehab it. Interesting. But after you do one or two, right, you get to be known, you get access to both banks and private money lenders and hard money lenders and all this. And you start to find out that money is the easy part. But when you first get started, it's, you got to establish yourself. And so you might have to bring some money to the game. That
0: makes sense. That's, that's, this is really good stuff because this is stuff that I think is I don't want to say undersaid, but a lot of, uh, like if someone were to go on YouTube and look at how to buy and sell property, they only give you the flashy good things, right? They don't give you the real of it. And that's what I think I'm really getting here, which I really like. I'm also very interested in like the economics of this whole process. So how much would you budget for repairs if you're going to buy a house? So if you're going to buy a house, you said you buy fixer uppers. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're gently needed fixer uppers or, or anywhere in the whole scale of all. Yep. Of but you had already mentioned the importance of having a little extra cash and the common misconceptions part of this. Uh, mm-hmm. How much cash would you recommend having on hand even after you purchase a house for things that could go wrong? Like a number, a percentage? Like what's what's kind of your thoughts behind that?
2: So there's two phases. So the first phase is when I buy a house and I'm fixing it up to rent out. That's different than I have the house, I fix it up and it's rented out now. So there's two different phases. So let's just acknowledge that. When I'm in the first phase, I'm going all in with the construction loan, including whatever I need to fix up. So it'll be like, I'm gonna spend 70 to 80% loan to value. If I estimate that the repairs for this house is gonna be 20,000, I always added like a 15 to 20% buffer on that. I would do my first like guesstimate. I had a formula I would use. It was literally simple. It was like 12. If it was like a low grade repair, it was like $12 per square foot was my estimate. So I could make an offer right away. But after you make an offer, it's not like you have 10 days. So I would bring three different contract companies in, three different ones to estimate, and they would give me all their estimates. And then I would get those estimates. They sometimes had a buffer in there. I would add another buffer in there. And that would would make me feel pretty good about the fixing upping. And then I would calculate that. I would see what the potential ARV was. And I had realtors run comps for me, but I would also run my own comps through zero. I would just look at the recently six months old and do my own math. And I would say, well, if I could fix it up and I could repair it, I'm going to at least cover or get more money at the end of this. I'll have X amount of dollars saved. My mortgage payment is potentially, we will make it easy, $1,000. So I'll just want to make sure that I have $6,000 saved when I first rent out that house. Cause it's already fixed up. All the maintenance is done. The risk that something's gonna go wrong, that insurance isn't gonna cover is pretty low because it's just been fixed up. I just wanna have six months worth of basically mortgages paid, which in a way will cover any unforeseen repairs that happen. And then I just put 10% on top of what I pay the management company. So it's way more than 10% um, away for repairs every month. And I have a category that's maintenance. And I just put it in there every single month, whether it needs it or not. Now, that's in a perfect world. It's happened before. Like I said, the HVAC caught on fire. So I had to spend all that money. I had to raise money elsewhere to do that. But I always build towards before I take out any money for another property or for myself, for example, now that the season of life I'm in. I won't take any money out of that property to put towards something else until I have at least three to four thousand dollars for maintenance set aside and about six months worth of mortgage set aside to pay
1: for cash. Well, so I think my final question here is we're we're both married here. Uh-huh. You're married. Uh, how did you talk your wife into doing this? <laughs> it just seems like it's, it's a lot, right? Kind of jumping into something. It's the big deal. And I know, I know that could be stressful. How did, how, what was the, what do those conversations kind of look like? How, how on board was your wife? How did it kind of evolve into, she's maybe a little bit more comfortable with it? Hopefully still. The first one was the hardest. So she
2: implicitly trusts me when it comes to financial decisions. But it was a real hard, she's like, wait a second, are we going to lose our house? Like these, all these questions came up yeah. right in the beginning. She was just being honest. So I, I did it partly that way. And then I also brought her in that first house. She hasn't really been a part of any of the others. But in that first house, I brought her along with me in the process. So I had her look at houses with me. You t- tell, me tell me what I'm thinking. You know whatever and she'd be like it stinks you know she'd want it all fixed up and i'm like that's the smell of money or whatever little jokes i'd say but we hashed that out and we did it together now if my wife would have said just to be honest if she would have said i'm not comfortable with this i probably wouldn't do it mm-hmm. i mean my wife's got to be on board and so like there's other was like me with the brain you know with with my attitude and philosophy it's like i would have found another way to figure out how to make it to retirement but for me my wife really had to be on board And she was never fully on board on that first house. She was just like, I'm willing to let you experiment on this first house. And that was enough. And you got to understand, like, especially back then, seven years ago, before that, I tried a lot of things and I did it for a year and stopped. So she's already coming in with that baggage. Like he's just, this is just something new. She doesn't understand it. And so it's just like, all I had to do is let her experiment with it. And then when she realized it didn't have a detrimental impact to our family, we didn't have any kids in. But detrolender yeah. mac to our marriage or our finances or anything like that. She's like, Oh yeah, keep doing it. And then when the money started coming in and I started speaking at our local RIA and talking to folks and training people, then she was like, Oh yeah, this is awesome. But it was a process. Yeah. But it's it's um I always say when it comes to money or investing, like write down your goals and values and start there. Don't start with, hey, I want to go do this real estate thing because somebody told me it's awesome. You got to start with, hey, like we have a value. We want to travel more often. You want me to take off more often? I think real estate is an avenue and path to get there. And here's why is a very different conversation. And that means that you've had already done the work to figure out what your goals and values are and if they're aligned. And so that's, I think that's where you start with any conversation like that.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. I actually have one more question that's completely unrelated to this. And then uh, we'll let you plug your stuff for sure. Um, to, okay. So people know where yep. to find you. Yeah. I should have started the podcast recording with this, but I completely forgot. So when we have a guest on, we always ask them what their favorite food, the best thing they've ever eaten mm. um, yeah, is because we are the financial feast and we like to talk about food just as much as we like to talk about money because they're two of our passions. So um, in all of your your travels, maybe all the things that you've done, what's the best thing? And it could be like, it could be something maybe your wife makes like, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. We need something extravagant, but what's the best thing you've ever eaten?
2: So I've eaten a lot of food, but I'm not really a foodie, but what I'll tell you is, is actually the best thing I've probably eaten is um, there's this chicken place in Okarchi, Oklahoma, and it's at a place called Aishans, It's the oldest bar in, restaurant in Oklahoma supposedly that's what they tout anyways but they do this deep fried whole chicken and it's like they put it on like a they don't even have plates or anything they serve like white bread and pickles it's like the best food I've ever had so I shouldn't look it up deep fried
1: whole chicken
2: yeah yeah I think it was on the food network sometime in the past I don't know people say people say it was it's just really good and it's like a 30-minute trip to get there but it's
1: so good that's worth it. Yeah. yeah. Sounds sounds excellent. <laughs> sounds fantastic. Yeah. 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 So before we go, why don't you plug where people can find you, how yeah. they can reach out, where they can see. I know you got a blog. So where people can find you, and maybe learn some more, because you got a lot of good information that you're kind of putting out there. So where can people find you?
2: Yeah, man. Uh just my name is the website I have, which is I write mostly on financial independence. Um it's at Nate Maharg, Maharg spelled M-E-H-A-R-G dot com. So you can find all my articles there. And then uh, um, I'm starting a local five meetup group in Oklahoma City, Edmond area. So if you happen to have any listeners that are there, um, I'm starting there. It's under Rebel Phi. OK, it's the group in Facebook. It's a Facebook group. So if you want to search for that, that'd be amazing. That's where you can find me. That's fantastic. Excellent. Well, thanks for jumping on.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: man. Great to have you.